Hello, and welcome to Stories of Scotland. I'm Jenny, your homicide detective for the day. And I'm Annie, your innocently archiving bystander. Mm-hmm. Now, whilst exploring a graveyard nearby our house, we've come across a tragic murder story. Just a warning here for any folks who don't like stories of grisly murder. This episode may not be for you. This is the first time we've done a true crime episode of this nature, but we really wanted to tell you this story because after discovering a little bit about it, we both became absolutely obsessed. Now, despite our dives into Scottish and Indonesian history, I had never heard of this dark tale until Jenny stumbled upon a strange gravestone with a really unusual engraving. This gravestone was tucked away in the corner of Chapel Yard Cemetery. It read... David Cumming, house carpenter, Inverness, aged 24 years, who was found dead in Rose Street, Inverness, on the morning of the 1st December, 1861, in circumstances to excite suspicion that death had been caused by violence. This monument is erected by his fellow tradesmen and other friends in Inverness, by whom he was much esteemed. And although through time the bottom half of the gravestone has become incredibly worn down and illegible, we were able to find its full inscription in the archives. Well, Annie was able to find it in the (laughs) archives. (laughs) But I was really surprised that I didn't know this murder story. Because in Inverness, where, I mean, I grew up just 20 miles down the road and now live here, absolutely everyone knows the dark stories of the streets. And so when me and Jenny heard of this murder, we became absolutely intrigued by the case. It's ultimately a story of a young man who met a brutal fate due to the greed of others. But let's not get ahead of ourselves, Annie. First, let's go back in time to see what Inverness was like in 1861. Inverness, our darling home the most northern city in Scotland, but it was just a town back in the 1860s. Inverness was growing rapidly at this time and found itself straddling both rural and industrial identities. To give you a flavour of this, on the front page of the Inverness Courier in November 1861, there are multiple lost and found adverts for... livestock. Found strayed. A two-year-old Highland heifer. So a heifer is a female cow, usually a young one that hasn't yet had a calf, or has only just had one little calf. The owner can have his heifer returned on payment of expenses by applying to Thomas Stewart. That's me, innkeeper, Charleston, in North Keswick. And it wasn't only cows that were going stray in Invernessshire. <gasps> Found at Ardmore. Edgerton, about ten days ago. Sorry it took so long to get it in the papers. I've been busy. A white breeding sow. The owner may have her by applying at the farm and paying expenses. If not claimed within ten days, it will be sold to defray expenses. That would be 
absolutely devastating for a farmer to lose their favourite beautiful breeding pig and then have her sold. Well, I hope this advert was successful, Annie, and that they reclaimed her. Front page news, after all. (laughs) (laughs) But then, in the same front page, we see stories of a rapidly changing industrial town. There are adverts for the railway and mail coaches. We see adverts for products that indicate a growing middle class of people, watchmakers, hatmakers, and fine coats. At this time period, in the 1860s, when the Highland clearances were still ongoing and rural crofters were getting brutally evicted from their ancestral homelands, the wealthier women of Inverness may choose to adorn themselves with an ancient Celtic ornament, as advertised in our Inverness Courier. They might feel sad for the poor crofters, but celebrate this same Highland identity with a Celtic brooch. Inverness is a place that is quickly transforming and setting the stones for the city that it is today. And it's on these streets that David Cumming walked. So, Jenny, for me, when you first showed me this gravestone, I found it genuinely shocking to see the story of a murder on a grave. Yes, I thought this was strange for a couple of reasons, Annie. Firstly, a murder is completely out of the ordinary, so it immediately grabbed my attention. But secondly, it seemed really strange the way that this poor lad was being remembered for his brutal death rather than his life. Just seemed like a weird thing to stick on a gravestone. Yes, it really was, but I guess it just shows the changing of the times. Mm. The victim here is David Cumming. And what do we know about David, Annie? Well, David was a young man, only 24 years old, and all accounts of him indicate that he was kind and generous. He grew up on Shore Street, which runs along the River Ness towards the harbour. This was a more industrial area of the town. By the end of the 1860s, we can see that Shore Street has a coal yard, a timber yard nearby. At the end of the river, in the area known as the Cherry, there's a slaughterhouse. And then closer to Shore Street, we have boat building yards, a soap and candle work, and a skinnery. Wow, it seems like a truly bustling place because Inverness train station was also just opened a few years previously in 1855 and an impressive viaduct runs across the River Ness. Inverness is suddenly a place where thousands of opportunities for a young man such as David Cumming are available. But the gravestone doesn't say much about his family, so do we know where he came from or what they were like? Yes, so they appear in the 1851 census. His father, William Cumming, was a house carpenter and his mother, Margaret, well, all the census tells us about her was that she was a wife, but she may have taken up odd jobs, we don't know. Or she may have had full-time employment and they just chose to write her down as a wife. That's not uncommon. Hmm. Well, we also found out that he had an older brother and sister who were named after his parents, William and Margaret. And his older brother only deviated from the family trade enough to become a ship carpenter. So someone who helps build ships. Carpentry certainly runs in the family. 
As a boy, David attended a free school in Inverness, and he was a promising and bright lad. He came first in his class for arithmetic, Ooh. writing, Ooh. and Bible studies. Yeah. Hallelujah. <laughs> he must have shown good promise, because the school leaving age at the time was only about 10 or 11. Wow. So he was still studying at school aged 14. Ah yes, the classic 10-year-old, leaving school and heading straight to the office. Get that child a booster seat for their swivel chair. And crayons, Annie. We need more crayons. It would have been more likely to be working in factories back then, Jenny. You still need crayons in the factory. (laughs) David was a really clever kid and would make a great carpenter with his excellent math skills. And that's exactly what David did. He followed in his father's footsteps, learning the family trade and becoming a house carpenter. Okay. And we know that as an adult, he was in the employment of an Inverness joiner, Mr Mackay. And in the tragic November that he met his fate, he had been working for Mr Mackay on a job out in the countryside, in Tomatin. And on his return to Inverness, something truly evil was about to happen. This striking and dramatic murder story was first reported in the Inverness Courier at the beginning of December 1861. For clarity, we're going to take aspects from similar local newspapers of the time, census records and some criminal papers. So you can check the episode notes if you're interested in the primary sources that we are drawing from. On the night of his death... David Cumming returned to Inverness on Saturday to visit his parents, who are decent, respectable people residing at the shore. In the absence of his master, Cumming, we believe, received from Mrs Mackay one pound as wages, and thereafter he engaged in chatting with acquaintances. He even treated one to a bottle of lemonade and then left him at 11 o'clock Saturday evening at the head of Church Street. So far as yet ascertained, this was the last time coming was seen in life. So it seems as though David was a sweet lad who worked hard and kept in good contact with his parents. He was reported to have walked all the way to Inverness from Tmatin just to visit his mum and dad, which is about 17 miles. Wow, that is a good hike. And he was even so kind as to buy one of his friends a lemonade with his hard-earned money. Aw, I think we all need a little gift of a bottle of lemonade from our exhausted friend every now and again. (laughs) (laughs) I've told you, Jenny, you're not getting any more fizzy drinks. Now, once he got to Inverness, he headed into town to see some of his friends. Yay! And around 11pm, he left his pals and braced himself against the cold November night. The journey back home wasn't more than 10 minutes. And despite it being quite late on a Saturday night, he wasn't drunk. On the contrary, the newspaper states that he was... Quite sober. But this journey was to be his last because as he made his way home to Shore Street, he passed down Church Street. Instead of carrying on on the proper route, his path diverged. Some malign influence must have withdrawn his steps in the direction of Rose Street. 
And it was down here that poor David met his end. It wasn't until 7am the next morning when Mrs Fraser of number 37 Rose Street heard loud groans coming from the back garden. Cautiously, she went out to investigate. Mrs. Fraser rose and by the light of a candle discovered that a man was lying in the doorway of a carpenter's shed in her garden. There was a deep cut behind his left temple and a good deal of blood on his face. Mrs. Fraser screamed loudly but no one came to her assistance and feeling the body still warm and at the joints in the arms still supple, she dragged him into her house in the hopes of saving his life. It was, however, too late. Oh, this is heartbreaking. Young David died soon after, on the morning of December 1st. And it was clear that this was a murder, for not only had David been stripped of all his clothes, except his socks and a boot, but his head bore the signs of a vicious attack of heavy blows, as though from a large hammer. Who only steals one boot? I can't believe that you're hearing this story, Jenny, and you're focusing on one boot. Well, I mean, if you're going to go to the effort of stripping someone naked, why only take off one boot? That's not, if you're robbing them, then you'd want the whole pair, wouldn't you? <laughs> it seems like an easy way to find out who did it, all right? Just look for the bloke cutting about with one boot on that's two sizes too small for him. <laughs> <laughs> well, that might not be a bad line of investigation, Jenny. The police actually found a much easier one because there was a line, quite literally, on the ground. The police tracked any traces of a struggle near the place and, observing marks in the courtyard as if a body had been dragged along, they followed the traces. These led through the back garden past the stable and across the garden of number 36 into the one belonging to number 35 of the street. Oh, Annie, this is some intense detective work going on here. Good thing all the police officers are highly trained (laughs) ten-year-olds. They are definitely not ten-year-olds, Jenny. That is not what a ten-year-old in Victorian Britain was doing. Straight on the force. (laughs) (laughs) But just in case this wasn't obvious enough, as, you know, a small trench... (laughs) showing the drag marks of the body. Alongside this devious track in the earth, there was also a set of footprints. All those years of detective training, Annie, finally paying off. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's over here. (laughs) No, no, step away from that human-shaped hole in the hedge. (laughs) And there were still more clues to be found. Oh, Superintendent Sutherland, having observed something protruding from the ground of the cabbage plot of number 35, only a few yards from the back window, had the plot dug up, and this brought to light the watch, broken guard, a necktie, and a shilling and threepence of money, belonging to the apparently murdered man. Okay, so as we heard earlier, David was paid a pound in wages. However, he had spent three shillings on tobacco, Mm -hmm. two shillings and a sixpence on a new necktie, and a couple of shillings generously buying his friends some drinks. 
For anyone that doesn't know their old money, there were 20 shillings in a pound. However, less than two shillings were recovered from the cabbage patch. So this poor young man was murdered for quite a tiny and wretched sum of money. Wow. I can't really imagine the desperation of the culprits to kill someone for that. However, what really struck me hard about this story when I started reading about it was that the final key to finding the murderer was in a cabbage patch. (gasps) The cabbage patch murder of Inverness. It's the cabbage patch murder Murder of of Inverness. Inverness. (laughs) (laughs) So whose cabbage patch was it, Annie? Well, seeing as the evidence was firmly pointing to the occupants of number 35, the cabbage growers, the police were quick to place them under watch. The family that lived at number 35 consisted of a stonemason named Nicol Ferguson, his wife, Catherine, and their three daughters, Isabella, Elizabeth, and Catherine. And did they, did they have a motive, Annie? Was this part of the classic stonemason versus house carpenter rivalry of the mid to late 19th century? Jenny, that was never a thing. That we know of. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what the detective realised was that the money found in the cabbage patch... cabbage patch murder. ...was far less than David was believed to have on him before the murder. So it looks as though this was a robbery that had gone horribly wrong. Mm. But then there's a drastic twist in this tale that would lead the family to be accused without any doubt. So a dead body two gardens along with a track from that body being dragged, a set of footprints and viables buried in a cabbage patch weren't enough to eradicate any doubt, Annie? (laughs) Unfortunately not. But the youngest Ferguson daughter, Catherine, was incredibly honest and she wanted to help the police. So she went to her father's locked outhouse and when she opened the door, here she found the clothes belonging to David Cumming. Uncertain of what to do, she gave them to her older sister, Isabella, who immediately gave them to the police. Mm. However, they smelt strange and were described as being saturated in some kind of offensive matter. Hmm. Yes, the evidence is really closing in on this family, like the leaves of a cabbage. But wait, there's more leaves on this cabbage, Jenny. The police also found the lost boot belonging to David Cumming in the Ferguson's garden. The mystery boot has been found! And also a big puddle of blood. Oh, wow, yep, that's another tick in the box. Anything else? An axe. Oh, wow. That was covered in blood. Huh. Yeah, the axe was found in the spot where David Cumming had been discovered on that very sad morning. Wow. So his body must have been lying on top of the weapon that murdered him. This is the worst cover-up I have ever heard of, Annie. Who tries to cover up the murder weapon with the body of the victim? (laughs) This is like, oh, no one's going to find it down here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jenny, the police came to the same conclusion. And the parents and the two eldest Ferguson daughters were all arrested and taken into custody. Only the youngest bairn, Catherine, was left out of suspicion. 
Yeah, she did seem to somewhat throw the family under the bus or the carriage a little bit more, seeing as she unlocked the shed and gave the police the clothes. So maybe she was the most trustworthy one out of them all. At least she was left behind to tend to the cabbages. (laughs) (laughs) Someone's got to look after the cabbages, Annie. Jenny, before we dig any further into this Cabbage Patch mystery, there's one possible scenario that has been suggested by the highly skilled journalists of the Inverness Courier, which suggests that this whole case could just be an elaborate accident of a drunken man. It is supposed by those who conceive that there was no murder or even homicide in the case that the deceased, in coming out of the passage from the garden, had fallen into this cesspool, one side of which is edged with sharp mason work, and there received a blow upon his temple. And when he got up, he staggered to the corner where the blood was found, and, stupefied by the fall, and disgusted by the offensive smell of his clothes, threw them off and made for the carpenter's shed behind Mrs. Fraser's house, where he died from exposure and the injury he had received from his tumble. I don't know, Annie. This doesn't quite explain the bloodied axe or the dirty clothes being locked in the shed. And, most of all, it doesn't explain the valuables buried in the cabbage patch. True, Jenny. The police agree with the summary, and so the Cabbage Patch murder is going to court. You know, Annie, I'm starting to think I'd have made a darn good mid-1800s police child. (laughs) (laughs) The police were not children, Jenny. You've got to let go of this. Anyway, this theory from the Inverness Courier is that the body was found close to a cesspool, a cesspit, and also a dung heap. And it must have smelt genuinely dreadful. The stench of an 1860s cesspit is something that I hope we never have to experience. But let me tell you, Annie, right? The the cabbages that fertilizer grows. (laughs) (laughs) If you're imagining this cesspit, if a drunken man was to fall into it, he may well have chosen to strip himself. Rose Street is not a wealthy part of town in the 1860s, and so we can imagine these gardens smell pretty badly from all of this wastage. It clearly doesn't add up. And so, for justice, we're going to rely on the Inverness Circuit Court. Okay. Well, we left off at all of the Ferguson family, bar the youngest daughter, being taken into police custody. And originally, it looked like three of the Fergusons were going to be charged. Due to take place on the 1st of May, 1862, three of the Fergusons were facing charges. Nickel Ferguson, his wife, Catherine Ferguson, and their eldest daughter, Isabella Judge. What an ironic last name. (laughs) It is an unfortunate last name, Jenny. 
Now, the extract that we have tells us that. It is an alternative charge of murder, assault, or robbery, and applied to all and each, or one or more of them. The weapon is said to have been an iron pinch, an axe, a hammer, or some other lethal weapon. Annie, he was found lying on an axe. Clearly it's the axe. <laughs> sorry, sorry, back to that. And the murder is stated generally to have been committed in or near the house of the prisoners. Yeah, I'm a bit curious about the axe. I'm wondering if the Inverness Courier maybe embellished the facts a little bit with the axe. Yeah. And it was it was perhaps more ambiguous what he was lying on. Mm-hmm. But that seems it seems strange either way. Could have been a crayon. <laughs> <laughs> there were no crayons at the scene, Jenny. And so the trial commences. We have the suspects. Nickel, a 60-year-old stonemason. Catherine, a 50-year-old wife who had raised her children and likely does odd work to bring in an extra bit of money. And their daughter, Isabella. She's 22 years old and works hard in the whole mills of Inverness. Likely in this job, she would have been spinning or weaving wool. She's married to Peter Judge, who's a hammerman. Yet, Isabella seems to be living at her parents' home, so perhaps her husband was away for a job. Married to a hammerman, you say? Hmm, maybe this is where the hammer comes into this axe murder. (laughs) Possibly, Jenny. But yet, there's another unexpected turn in this tale. For this, we need to go to the courthouse. I'll bring her powdered wigs, Annie, and some cabbage. (laughs) So, the trial of the Cabbage Patch murder happened in the spring of 1882. This was a massive case for Inverness and created a lot of public interest to the extent that 68 witnesses Whoa. were being called to give testimony. I feel like that's half of Inverness at the time, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, oh, you feeling left out? Come on, up you come, on you go, go on, say your wee piece. <laughs> now, the witness list includes residents of Rose Street, neighbours of the Fergusons, a blacksmith, a joiner, a shop worker. Also, Mrs Barbara Fraser, the neighbour who had found the body beside her outhouse was also called to give evidence. It's really surreal reading the witness list. All these people are from places in the city that we recognise. People like Helen Gellin, an innkeeper from Gellin's Close. There's still a pub called Gellin's in that spot today, which boasts being the oldest pub in Inverness, which put two and two together, it's the same pub, which is really, really cool. There's also a barber, a tailor, a boot closer, who I don't know if that's just a glorified shoelace tire or not, (laughs) but there's a plumber, a night watchman, and all of them are from streets that we still walk today, all streets that are so familiar to us. Yes, it's the same streets, Jenny, but just so you know, a boot closer is the person who sews the upper part of the shoe. I'm going to be honest and say I prefer the idea that someone's job was to just tie people's laces. Well, when you've got such a young police force, sometimes they need a hand. (laughs) (laughs) But then, also giving evidence were the children of Nicol and Catherine, 
So that's Elizabeth and little Catherine who had found the bloodied clothes in the outhouse. Nicol and Catherine's son, Donald Ferguson, gave a testimony as well. Though he didn't even live with his parents, so it was unlikely he was there on the night it happened. He maybe just wanted to testify. So that's our witness list. But by May 1st, the suspect list was whittled down from three people to only one. Who do you think was the person finally accused of the murder, Jenny? Ah, uh, I am going to go with the father, Nickel. Why? Um, I feel like the body was dragged across two gardens, which would require some amount of strength. And at the same time, to deal a blow to the head, which would ultimately cause death, is, you know, that's a, a feat of strength. And I feel like a strong stonemason who's used to hammering things his whole life would probably be the most likely of the three. Not so, Jenny. I knew you were going to catch me. I knew that was a trick. <laughs> it turns out that spinning and weaving wool requires a great deal of upper body strength. Who knew? <laughs> Weavers. <laughs> In the end, the full power of the law came falling only on the shoulders of the main suspect, 22-year-old Isabella Judge. What? That, that's... This seems bizarre. She spins wool. How is she going to be bludgeoning a young, strong carpenter to death, then dragging him two gardens away? And also, why? Well, the trial brings to light several aspects of the story that appear very different to the original reporting. Mm. So, first, let's go back to the night of the murder. The early reports state that David was meeting with his friends, treated them to lemonade, and left sober. However, the court case implies that David was heavily intoxicated and visited several drinking establishments. Oh, so this explains why Helen Gillen, the innkeeper, was called to the stand. They may be giving evidence about David coming, uh, about the amount that he drank. But I mean, at the same time, he's also young and hardworking and it's a Saturday night in Victorian Inverness, you know, the Misty Badgers were flowing out. And he'd walked 17 miles to visit his mum and dad. Surely no one would blame him for having a well-deserved drink. Or six. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. But I think that what the defence are trying to do is to weave a story that the death of David Cumming was a series of tragic coincidences. So how is this all then pinned on young Isabella? Ultimately, it was the testimony of the neighbours which really helped us understand what happened that dreadful night. They were unanimous. Do you want to read some of them? Sure. Ferguson's family was quite an unruly one, um, and the neighbours were accustomed to hearing violence, especially on pay nights. Great uproar was heard from the family around three o'clock on Sunday morning. Persons living above heard two men's voices from the living room, one of them recognised as Ferguson's. A female voice, thought to be Mrs Ferguson, was heard from the back garden, swearing offensively and quite violently. Another neighbour, however, heard violent ejaculations, but was convinced that they were in the voice of Isabella Judge. Among other expressions from Isabella was heard, Lord... Forgive me for what I have done. This was followed by the words from her father. Wished, wished, wished girl. 
Her father was silencing her from making a confession that night. However, Isabella does give a confession, but not one for the murder, rather a plea for a merciful sentence. We hear the voice of justice say, Isabella Judge was charged with the crimes of murder, assault and robbery, committed on the person of David Cumming, the night of November 1861, or the morning of the 1st of December 1861. It is not without much anxious and deliberate consideration that I have come to the conclusion that it is my duty to accept the plea which the panel has now tendered, a plea that Isabella Judge is guilty of assault to the effusion of blood, the injury of the person, and the danger of life of the deceased David Cumming. No wonder she dangered his life. He died. (laughs) Excuse me. Quiet. (laughs) Quiet in the court. The deceased was found with one wound of violence only upon his person, one wound upon the forehead, inflicted apparently by lethal weapon and apparently the result of one blow. The prisoner has now acknowledged that it was her hand that dealt the blow to which I have referred. I feel, in the circumstances in which I am placed, that there is not evidence available to warrant me in pressing charges against the other parties who had been formally implicated in this crime. So what this means is that the charges against Isabella's family have been completely dropped. But this seems a bit unfair because they were all clearly involved somehow when all of their voices have been heard outside and all the various attempts to cover up the murder, like the dragging of the body, the locking of the shed, the burying of the valuables. I feel like this is one for all of the family. Well, in a few minutes, this will not seem like the injustice of this trial. It gets worse because the legal defence of Isabella is surprisingly devious. This case doesn't go the way that we're expecting it to go. Mr. McLennan, who spoke on behalf of Isabella, gives the following excuse. Isabella Judge had been the victim of bad training and subject all her life to a bad mother who was given to drink and disorder. I hope that their lordships take these circumstances into consideration when passing the sentence. So a big part of the defence here, Jenny, is just poor parenting. (laughs) What do you think of that? Well, first off, the parents were involved in this. So, like, you can't excuse them of the crime and then blame the person who did the crime on them while excusing them. And secondly, that turned out fine. However, the true genius of this defence was to bring into question the amount drunk by David Cumming and the precise timing of his death. Their argument was that Isabella Judge violently striking David Cumming with a weapon was not the reason for his death. She did severely injure him, but they are arguing that his death was caused by a combination of his own intoxication and then exposure to the cold harsh, long November night. This just seems like unfair victim blaming, Annie. But he wouldn't have been exposed in the long, cold, dark November night if she hadn't have walloped him on the head with a hammer slash axe. I mean, (laughs) if she hadn't have wanted to have killed him, 
there was plenty of time to actually help him rather than taking off his clothes. I just... What? Aye, Jenny, I think I agree with you here. You think? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's clearly a case of malicious assault and robbery. And the actions of the Fergusons definitely led to the death of David Cumming. However, the judge sees this differently. (sighs) He acknowledges that the case began with a very grave charge against Isabella, that of murder. However, he believes that David Cumming was considerably intoxicated and, combined with the cold weather on that morning of December 1st, David died from exposure. But why was he exposed? (laughs) The medical report couldn't confirm if the savage blow to David Cummings' head was the cause of his death or if it was the exposure to the winter weather. And so the judge decided... I'm sending the weather to jail. (laughs) (laughs) I wish the judge had sent the weather to jail. That is not what's happening. There was a want of evidence to clear up the mystery in regard to the cause of that exposure to the inclemency of the weather. And feeling that intoxication might account for this exposure, I felt warranted, indeed constrained, to accept the plea that has been offered. It wasn't intoxication that encountered for the exposure. It was definitely a big bang on the head with a weapon. But what we're seeing is that the trial is accepting a plea of assault from Isabella Judge. This is genuinely shocking. This honestly feels like an open and shut case. If not murder, then at least culpable homicide, which in Scots law is like manslaughter. It's if you accidentally kill someone when all you meant to do was cause them harm, not take their life. But I mean, there was a bloodied axe for goodness sake and they just stripped him and left him out there. We'll never know the precise details of what happened on that fateful night. They killed him! Probably. (laughs) However, we do know the verdict. Isabella Judge has pleaded guilty only to the charge of aggravated assault. And that plea has been accepted by the public prosecutor. But the panel least ought to feel that she had been drawn near to the brink of the greatest crime that could be committed, that of murder. Or what was the next thing to it, breathing a fellow creature of life, but without previous malice. The plea of Isabella Judge has been accepted, and the prisoner is sentenced to 18 months imprisonment. What, Annie? 18 months, a year and a half. (laughs) Wow. Wow. I think perhaps the reason that they put the details of the brutal murder of David Cumming on his gravestone Mm -hmm. was so that people would still be outraged by it. Yeah, to to know that, look, this woman got done for assault, but we are all outraged and want people in the future. 160 years from now... To know that an injustice was done against David Cumming. I have to agree with that. The verdict from Isabella Judge's own confession gave her only 18 months imprisonment, which she served in the general prison at Perth. So, in the judge's eyes, the cabbage patch murder is only the cabbage patch assault. 
and Isabella gets 18 months jail time. Annie, that seems so unfair. Poor David had his life so horribly taken from him, and this just seems like a slap in the face for his mourning parents and the memory of him. And I don't feel like we've got the full story either. I don't feel like Isabella did this crime by herself. Mm. I just think she could have been a scapegoat. Mm. And something something bigger happened that night, but we'll never know what mm-hmm. actually occurred. Do you want to know what I think happened? What do you think happened? He went down Rose Street to relieve himself, right? He'd been drinking, he was drunk, he went to have a wee in an alleyway. Weed in this person's back garden, they got angry and were like, and these people seized the opportunity to rob a man. And the robbery went horribly wrong and the whole family got involved in the cover-up. Is what I think happened. And then Isabella Judge somehow got 18 months in prison. Well, we'll never know, Jenny. Mm. But it really did shock me that the judge seemed satisfied with the Ferguson's defence arguments and Isabella's plea. But I'm certain that his family and friends were highly unsatisfied with the final verdict. Mm. It feels like this case shouldn't have been closed as easily as it was. Considering how easy it was to open, it was should have been as easy to close. <laughs> So this was genuinely the most gruesome episode we've ever made. I find it really tough researching true crime because ultimately this is the tragic story of a young man who lost his life. However, there was one small article about the case which was slightly happier. The Inverness murder case. A public subscription is on foot for the benefit of the parents of the late unfortunate David Cumming. Although it only began a few days ago, already nearly £30 has been subscribed. So it comforted me just a tiny bit to see that the friends and family of David Cumming and the sympathetic public of Inverness were clubbing together to support his parents. And I also appreciate that his gravestone was set up by his fellow tradesmen, people who shared good memories of David. And it was this very gravestone that we spotted on our wander around the graveyard. What a strange journey it has taken us on through the 19th century streets of Inverness. It really has. I don't think either of us ever set out to write a true crime podcast. But I have to say, though it was very challenging, it was also enthralling to research. I was absolutely gripped by this case. And Annie, I think you absolutely outdid yourself with the research as well. This is not a case that is well known. There's nothing online about this. This is something we literally stumbled upon and Annie was able to dig deep into the archives and pull out all this information on. Thank you, Annie, for bringing it to light. But the Cabbage Patch murder was certainly an interesting look at the darker side of life in the past. To have such a brutal murder in the middle of a town for such a meagre amount of money paints a picture of poverty, desperation and violence that we don't usually see when it comes to the history books or the history podcasts. Yes, and to have only one person convicted for this crime, despite the mountain of evidence against the whole family, as well as the shockingly short 18-month sentence, this case seems to show a much more merciful justice system than that we're accustomed to in the mid-1800s. 
However, I think that some of the more baffled aspects of the case created an atmosphere of uncertainty around the death, and unfortunately, we'll just never know what really happened. Well, there's no longer any cabbage patches at all down Rose Street in Inverness. Good. Rose Street is known mostly for its multi-storey car park. There's a couple of large budget shops, and it's not the kind of place that tourists would even notice. But if you've been to Inverness, you probably have walked past Rose Street. It's only a minute away from the bus station. Well, honey, there we have it. The tale of the Cabbage Patch murder. Slash assault. (laughs) But mainly murder. I guess that's case closed. I suppose. Very unsatisfyingly. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you all so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. If you would like to thank us for digging these tales out the cabbage patch of the archives, then please do give us a wee review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to our strange little show. If you feel like giving us an even bigger token of appreciation, you can head on over to our Patreon, where we've got some bonus content. We have a couple of people joining the Stories of Scotland Patreon family this week, so a gigantic thanks to... Stephen and Brooklyn. You guys are all so kind and generous, and we really value your support. Yes, a big thank you to all of our patrons. And a final thanks to all of you for tuning in to Stories of Scotland and sticking with us to hear the story of David Cumming. Anyway, Jenny, now that we've finished, shall we go and have some cabbage soup? That is a hard no for me, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, slangeva. Slangeva. Annie, was this actually called the Cabbage Patch Murders, like in the newspapers? No, we just thought it would make a catchy headline. It is very catchy. You should have been a journalist back then. I should have been a police officer, if only. (laughs) If only we could travel in time, Jenny. If only I was ten again. (laughs) 